the book of Esther. Hey, Chris made it back safe, but he is sick. So if you want to pray for, I know, exactly. You get home, uh, well, you know how it is. You, you go from something really beautiful and then you showed up in a story and it was raining. So I'm, I'm kidding. It's probably not. Today's actually really nice. But if you pray for Chris, that'd be great. He'll be back next week to catch us up on the missionaries I got to visit and what the Lord did and, um, and resume our regular studies. So Stephen did, this, did a great job last week from 2 Peter chapter 3. If you guys didn't get to listen, um, you can check that online. But he said, he goes, he introduced himself like, I should probably do that. My name is Michael. In case you don't know me, I work here at the church. <laughs> so like, oh yeah, not everybody knows who we are sometimes. So um, I'm, I've just got done reading Esther and my own Bible read through. I thought it was really fun. So I thought we would do that today. Um, we're going to cover a lot of the book of Esther quickly and then kind of slow down for chapters five, six, and seven. And is that Tom? Hey, how are you guys? Good to see you. I know, right? It's old homework for Ecola people. And welcome back, Ecola students, guys. It's so great to have you. Um, most of the Ecola students, as you know, sit in this section. It's the beginning, uh, it's the end of their first week of their last term. We, so we have them for six more weeks. Just put a plug in. If you have not invited any Ecola students over to your house for food, you really should do it. They're a lot of fun and they have to eat institutional food all the time. So they'll be super grateful, whatever you offer them, right? See, yeah, see, they're, they're just over here, sad, starving little students, and you know, you could feed them. And everyone I know that's had them over has a great time, so. Also, Freed and Scoop is not closing. I know that's not actually really important, but it is to me. That doesn't have anything to do with the sermon. Okay, Esther, <laughs> Esther chapter one. So really fast, some background stuff for the book of Esther. Uh, this is the... Um, this is taking place, if you were trying to fix it in your Bible timeline, let me give you the broad, quick Bible timeline. So you have creation, right? And then the Bible zooms in on this guy, Abraham, and follows his family until everybody winds up in Egypt as slaves. And then they're there for, you know, 400 years and change. And then God delivers them <clears throat> out of Egypt. You remember the story of Joseph and all that? Joseph takes care of them while they're down there. And then they become slaves under Pharaoh. And you watched Prince of Egypt, you know, and so you know how they come out and they sing songs. I'm just kidding, that didn't happen, probably. And they get to um, the Red Sea and God parts the Red Sea for them, right? And they head out into the wilderness. And they're supposed to go straight to the promised land, the land that God had promised to Abraham and his descendants. But they go to the entrance of the promised land after a long adventure and they don't respond in faith, right? They, they get scared of the giants and the battles that are ahead and they're like, we can't do it. And God says... Yeah, they're gonna kill us, you're freaked out. And God's like, all right, fine, you're right. You're not gonna go in. I'll take your kids in and you're gonna go wander for 40 years in the wilderness. So round and round they go in the wilderness until all of the guys who were part of that generation that didn't believe God died. And then their kids come back under Joshua and they hit the Jordan River. God parts the Jordan River and they go. It's an epic series of battles and they take over most of the promised land that God had said would be theirs. And then they get into the period of the judges where there's this, this continual cycle of uh, sliding away from God, usually into the worship of the, of the Baals or something like that and, the, and just terrible things. And then they're subjugated by another nation. And then God raises up a judge when they cry out to him and God delivers them. And that just keeps on repeating and getting worse and worse. And if you've ever read the book of Judges, it's like one of the most depressing books in the whole Bible. And so then they're like, hey, what we really need is we need to get ourselves a king so we can be like everyone else. And they're really rejecting God from being their king. And so they, God's like, all right, I'll give you what you asked for. By the way, I sometimes think the worst thing that God does for me, well, it's kind of a judgment, but it's, he gives me what I want. Have you ever found that? You just like insist on something. God's like, all right, that's what you want. Here you go. So he gives him a king and that's Saul. And Saul's not a good guy, right? Uh, and then he gives him David after Saul, who's the man after God's own heart who's a good king, not perfect, but a, a generally good king. And the nation then has a civil war under, right after his son Solomon dies and splits in two. And they go through another period of decline. And eventually God says, listen, you continually leave me for idols. And because you do that, you're committing spiritual adultery. And so what I'm gonna do is there's gonna be this separation. I'm going to separate from you because of your unfaithfulness in our relationship. I'm not quitting on you but I'm gonna separate from you and you're gonna go away for 70 years. And so off they go to Babylon. And so the, that period of their time in Babylon is called the exile. And so if you ever hear the term the exilic period, that's just a reference to that 70 year period um, that the, the Israelites were out of the land and then they're brought back in. And so um, if you wanna read about that, you can earlier in the Bible, Esther takes place after that 
exile has ended. So if you were thinking of, you guys remember Daniel's big statue, that vision he has of that statue? Okay, if you don't remember, Daniel has a, st- a vision of a statue. Actually, Nebuchadnezzar has the vision and then Daniel interprets it for him. And it's a statue with different layers. And the top level is gold, the head of gold. And that represents Nebuchadnezzar and the kingdom of Babylon. And the kingdom of Babylon was succeeded by the Persian empire represented by the chest and arms of silver. And that's the period of time in which we find ourselves here. So the children of Israel, a small chunk of them have gone back into the land of Israel. The temple is being rebuilt and it probably is rebuilt at this point. And Esther is one of those people who's still in exile living in the kingdom of Persia. So if you were to try to fix this in your Bible timeline, this, the events of Esther probably take place between Ezra chapter six and seven, if you need to, to fix it. So it's interesting. Esther is here in Persia at a time when a chunk of God's people have gone back to Israel. It's interesting. When, when they get this decree, Cyrus, the first king of Persia, says, hey, you guys can go back. It was part of his policy kind of throughout his kingdom to send people back to their original homelands. And he did that in fulfillment of very specific prophecy where God had named him in Isaiah that a guy named Cyrus, about 100, 200 years before he was born, was gonna give this decree. And he did exactly what God um, said he would do. Josephus says that Cyrus actually read the scroll of Isaiah. In fact, some people speculate Daniel, who would have been in the court at that time, read it to Cyrus. And then Cyrus is like, whoa, that's me. I should do that. And so he sends the people sends the people back. But not everybody went. I always wonder about that. Why do you think some people would go back to the God's promised land and some people would stay? Comfort. Comfort. I think so, man. I think if you've been there, you got to even told them like, hey, seek the welfare of the nation where I placed you, like build houses, get married, run businesses and all that. And if you've built a little, you know, ice cream empire or something, just hypothetically, I don't know what you would do if you had a small business. And you're like, I don't know if I can take that on the road with me. You know, it's probably an ice cream truck already in Palestine. So Anyways, a bunch of people stayed. We don't know why, um, but it seems like it was kind of a risky play to stay, you know, especially because those nations kept fighting and, and conquering each other. And so where we pick up our story is probably right around 483 BC, right in that range. Uh, it's uh, right before uh, the kingdom of Greece is on the rise and Persia is having a series of ongoing wars with, um, with Greece. And where we start in Esther chapter one at this big banquet that um, the king is throwing. And your Bible may have Ahasuerus. That was the Hebrew name for, the, for King Xerxes, Xerxes I. Um, so the, um, I'm, the NL, I'm reading from the NLT. He's gonna call him Xerxes all the way through, so don't get confused by that. Xerxes is throwing this big banquet and he's probably throwing this big banquet to prepare for this big invasion of Greece that he's gonna take a shot at. And just so you know, this is the one that goes, one of the ones that goes really badly for him. They make a bunch of, advances, but they finally lose, and they lose um, to um, Gerard Butler uh, play, playing King Leonidas. At, yeah, so that's, that's what's happening. If you want to fix this in history. So let's jump in. Esther chapter one. I'm going to move really quickly, like I say, in summary, make a few points. Oh, one other thing we have to say about this is um, uh, Esther is narrative literature. You've heard us talk about this before, that the Bible comes in different kinds of books, right? It's a library and um, some books are didactic or some passages are didactic, which means they're teaching passages. They say, uh, for example, in Exodus 20, thou shall have no other gods before me. That's a passage that tells us we're only supposed to worship one God, right? Um, narrative passages tell us an accurate story of what happened, but don't always tell us what to do with that information. So you can have things like where... Um, Oh, what's the one I always love? Uh, Lot and his family, right? So Lot, who the Bible says is, in Peter is a righteous man, goes off into a cave. His daughters get him drunk and have sex with him and, and they have children and that's where two nations come from. Well, the Bible's not telling you that that's a good family plan, right? <laughs> you should read that and you should go, that's terrible. You, when you read the book of Judges, there's a lot of stuff that happens and you should read it and go like, should I chop up a lady's body and mail out in 12 parts to the kingdom? No. No, you're supposed to read that and go like, that's terrible. It's, it's accurately telling you what happened, but not what to do. And so Esther is an accurate story of what happened, but don't try to read it as like, oh, this is a model for what to do. For two reasons, at least. One is which the Persian empire is a pagan empire. So you're gonna see some people do some terrible things here that you're not supposed to look at and go, oh yeah, that's my life first. Don't do that. We use, the, we use the teaching passages to interpret the narrative passages that we read. So 
We'll do some of that as we go. Anyway, let's jump in. All right, Esther chapter one. These events happened in the days of King Xerxes who ruled over 127 provinces stretching from India to Ethiopia. Do we have that slide, Marcus? I'm get a little slide of how big the Persian empire was. It's pretty cool. Yeah, there it is. So all the orange stuff, right? And you can see that little, the bottom of that little red line is Susa. That's where all of the action in our story is gonna take place today. And if you follow that red line all the way over to where it says Ionia, that's the Aegean Sea. And you can see Greece and where they're kind of pushing up against that. So anyway, Persia was huge. Uh, you couldn't go visit Susa today. Evidently they have found the archeological remains of the palace that we're gonna read about, but it's in Iran. So good luck. Okay. 127 provinces, super big, super big. At that time, Xerxes ruled his empire from his throne in the fortress of Susa. So in the third year of his reign, he gave a banquet for all his nobles and officials and invited all the military officers of Persia and Media, as well as all the princes and nobles of the provinces. The celebration lasted for 180 days. Homeboy throws a party for half a year. Okay, well, again, I just slide through that. He's probably planning this military campaign that was gonna go really badly. Uh, down to um, verse seven. Drinks were served in gold goblets of many designs, abundance of royal wine reflecting the king's generosity. He's basically showing off his wealth and power and pomp all the way through, probably to persuade some of the people that he's bringing in to like, please join my coalition to go and destroy uh, Greece. No limits were placed on the drinking. What could go wrong? For the king had instructed all his palace officials to serve each man as much as he wanted. At the same time, Queen Vashti gave a banquet for the women in the royal palace of King Xerxes. On the seventh day of the feast, King Xerxes was in high spirits because of the wine. That means exactly what you think it means. <laughs> this is King, king Xerxes going, hold my beer. <laughs> so he tells the eunuchs who attended him, he lists their names to bring Queen Vashti to him with the royal crown on her head. He wanted the nobles and all the other men to gaze on her beauty. Now, that sounds weird, yes? Right, okay. It probably was actually weirder than you think. The implication is, and it doesn't say explicitly, but the implication is that he wanted her to wear the crown and nothing else. Like if these were nobles, they'd have been familiar with the queen. They'd known who she was. They probably was known that she was beautiful. So this king now hammered, <laughs> is like, hey, you should see how hot my wife is. You've seen all my money and all my food. You guys should see how hot my wife is. Like, Henny, how about you come in front of all these people who are a bunch of drunk men naked? What do you think she thinks about this plan? So she's like, no, hard pass. She refused to come. This made the king furious and he burned with anger. So he goes into this consultation, he calls his cabinet together. <laughs> what are we gonna do about my wife? So you know, you got eight drunk guys sitting around trying to decide what to do about this woman who wouldn't come and be a, a sex object for them. So basically they're like, hey, look, at, look at verse 10. Memekin, one of the guys in his cabinet, answered the king, Queen Vashti has wronged not only the king, but every noble and citizen throughout your empire. Women everywhere will begin to despise their husbands when they learn that Queen Vashti has refused to appear before the king. Before this day is out, the wives of all the king's nobles throughout Persia and Media will hear what the queen did and will start treating their husbands the same way. There'll be no end to their contempt and anger. And I actually think you should probably read it with a little bit of a slur. <laughs> There'll be no end to their contempt and anger. So here's these eight guys coming up with their plans. So... So they write this whole thing down and they send this thing out and they're gonna banish Queen Vashti. And I just gotta read you, the NLT just makes me laugh so hard. Verse 22, the end. He sent letters to all the parts of the empire to each province in its own script and language proclaiming that every man should be the ruler of his own home and should say whatever he pleases. Yeah. <laughs> so anyway, again, this is why it's narrative literature. You're not supposed to be reading going, yeah, that's right. That's what we should be doing. Anyways, so Vashti's out. This is why that part of the story comes in. Verse, or chapter two, verse one, but after Xerxes' anger had subsided, oh, you know, just a quick stop right here and say, you know, the, the scripture says that whoever is intoxicated by wine is not wise. <laughs> you think? <laughs> this man wound up divorcing his wife because he had a drunken party and made a terrible decision. If you have a problem with alcohol, can I just say that you're not alone? There was a time in our church, I think probably like half of our guys were ex-alkies. We had a really strong ministry going where the Lord was rescuing people out of all that. And so if you're dealing with that, hey, you're not alone. You're in a good place. And there's a lot of people who'd wanna help you. Come talk to any of us. Man, there's guys meeting on uh, Tuesday night too. And um, you'd, be, you'd be absolutely welcome. Because man, 
alcoholism can just ruin your life. Any kind of intoxication really can. I think this is a good example of why you don't want to be one of those folks if you can avoid it. So anyway, because chapter two, verse one, but after Xerxes' anger subsided, he began thinking about Vashti and what she had done and the decree he had made. Ever woken up from, you know, kind of gotten sober and been like, what in the world was I thinking? What did I do? Now, this after is probably a longer period of time. This is probably after that, uh, that Greek adventure, misadventure that I described. And so he's come home, kind of tail between his legs, defeated by Greece. And he's like, man, I don't even have a wife. And I was kind of an idiot. Uh, and Vashti, you know, there was the possibility, it says he's thinking about Vashti, that maybe he was like, oh, maybe I can get back together with him. Now, if you're one of the seven guys in his cabinet who recommended <laughs> that he get rid of his wife, do you think you're in favor of that plan? No, why? Because if Vashti became queen again, what might she think about you and your job? And so they're like, ah, let's come up with a plan for the king where he doesn't get Vashti back. So here's what they say. His personal attendant suggested, let's search the empire to find beautiful young virgins for the king. So the king appointed agents in every province to bring these beautiful young women into the royal harem at the fortress of Susa. Oh, sorry, let, let, us, let the king appoint them. They're giving the plan, my fault. Uh, Haggai, the king's eunuch, would be in charge of the harem. We'll see that all are given beauty treatments. Verse four, after that, the young women who most pleases the king will be made queen instead of Vashti. This advice was very appealing to the king. Why do you think that was? Here's our plan. How about we bring a bunch of young women to you and you can sleep with all of them and pick the one you want. Okay. Yeah, I just real quick, sometimes people like try to romance the story of Esther. It's really creepy. It's really creepy. It is. It's, it's very creepy. Like Esther is about to get chosen as one of these women. This is what you think it is. This is a forced marriage. Agents went out and found virgins and dragged them into the king and king went through them one by one. And then they were your property. And maybe if you, you'd never see the king again, you might just live in the harem and be a kept woman for the rest of your life. Don't, sometimes like, oh, it was a beauty pageant. <laughs> nope. <laughs> you know, oh, it was cool. Look at this loving thing. And they dated for a while. Nope. <laughs> nope. They just came in one by one. And that's, that's how it was. So at that time, verse five, there was a Jewish man in the fortress of Susa whose name was Mordecai, son of Jer. Now, Mordecai... Um, was from the tribe of Benjamin and a descendant of Kish and Shammai. His family had been among those who, with King Jehoiakim of Judah, had been exiled from Jerusalem to Babylon by Nebuchadnezzar. So this is the deportation in 597 BC, if you're tracking with that. There were three deportations in 605, 597, and 586, and this would have been the second one in 597. This is not saying that Mordecai was deported in 597. That would make him about 115 years old. <laughs> this is saying that his father, his great-grandfather, probably your great-great-grandfather, Kish, was one of the guys who was deported. But it's just interesting that Mordecai is still there. He's one of those people who didn't go back to the promised land. So he's there. And he had a beautiful and lovely cousin, Hadassah, um, whose name was, is Esther in the uh, uh, pagan language was also called Esther. Uh, when her father and mother died, Mordecai adopted her into his family and raised her as his daughter. So here's Esther, a really sad story. She's an orphan, beautiful, being raised by her cousin. I don't know if that sounds like the life story that you were hoping for, but that's how Esther starts. And it kind of, in some ways, gets worse for her before it gets better. As a result of the king's decree, Esther, along with many other young women, was brought to the king's harem. Think about the mechanics of this. That means some guy from the palace showed up and to Mordecai's house and sees Esther, or maybe it was known that she was a hottie, and is like, I'm taking her. There wasn't a negotiation. You just got, you, so now your parents have died. You're being raised by your cousin in a foreign land where you're in exile. And now somebody comes and basically like kid, kidnaps you. You're a human trafficking victim for all intents and purposes. So off she goes to the palace. And um, I'm gonna go really fast through this section. Basically, there's a whole thing about the beauty treatments and and the Lord giving her favor in that place in the harem. And she's instructed by Mordecai not to tell anyone that she's Jewish. So they're apparently keeping their Jewishness secret at this point. Why do you think they would do this? Just speculating. Persecution, yeah. What if there's people out there that hate you because of your race? Uh, but in order to keep this a secret, this, could have, this would have been fairly problematic. Were there any things that Jews did or didn't do that were different from the general culture around them that you can think of? Food, yeah. So you're in a pagan, there's more than that you could think of, but that's the obvious one. In order to keep your Jewishness secret, this probably means that these two were not keeping the Jewish food laws. 
right? There's no sacrificial system at this point that they're able to participate in. All that's back in Jerusalem. So they don't have that going. They don't have their, um, their food laws being kept. I just wanna draw this out that there's no indication that Esther and Mordecai are especially righteous Jewish people. That may, sound, that may sound mean, I'm not being mean. I'm just saying in the text, there's no indication of that. So she's keeping that a secret. She goes in and they take care of her and all that. Now, uh, verse 12 of chapter two, each woman was taken to the king's, excuse me, before each young woman was taken to the king's bed, that means what you think it means, she was given the prescribed treatments. Verse 13, when it was time for her to go to the king's palace, she was given her choice of whatever she wanted. Verse 14, that evening she was taken to the king's private rooms and the next morning she was brought to the second harem where the king's wives lived. There she would be under the care of Shaskaz, the king's eunuch in charge of the concubines. She would never go to the king again unless he had especially enjoyed her and requested her by name. If that sounds icky to you, it's because it is. You should read the story and go, that's, that's creepy weird because it does. was. So um, verse 15, middle of it, when it was Esther's turn to go to the king, she accepted the vice of, of Haggai, the eunuch in charge of the harem. She asked for nothing except what he suggested and she was admired by everyone who saw her. Esther was taken to King Xerxes at the royal palace in early winter of the seventh year of her reign. If you're doing the math, this is our dating, right? We had about three years into his reign. He's planning this whole conquest thing. He goes, he loses, comes back. He's super sad. How about I get another wife? It's about four years later when he and Esther get married. So the king loved Esther more than any of the other young women. He was so delighted with her that he set the royal crown on her head and declared her queen instead of Vashti. So that's an upside for Esther at this point. To celebrate the occasion, he gave a great banquet in Esther's honor for all his nobles and officials. Bro likes to party, we know that. Declared a public holiday for the provinces and gave generous gifts to everyone. So even after all the young women had been transferred to the second harem and Mordecai had become a palace official, you might note that, 219, Mordecai is now sitting in the king's gate. It's probably what your translation has there. Sitting in the gate meant that you had like a job as a judge or something like that. So Mordecai's now got an official job. Esther continued to keep her family background and nationality a secret. She's still living undercover. She was still following Mordecai's directions just as she did when she lived at home. Now, the next part is also important. All of these details come into play later. 21. One day as Mordecai was on duty at the king's gate, two of the king's eunuchs, Big Thana, <laughs> what a terrible name, and Teresh, who were guards at the door of the king's private quarters, became angry at King Xerxes and plotted to assassinate him. But Mordecai heard about the plot and gave the information to Esther. She told the king, gave Mordecai the credit. And when an investigation was made and Mordecai's story was found to be true, the two men were impaled on a sharpened pole. Do you have something about gallows there? A lot of translations do. Gallows, right? Yeah, so we hear gallows and usually we think of what we think in the old west, hang them high, and there's a noose and that whole thing. Well, that's probably not it. It really was this idea of impaling and impaling was a long, sharp stick and they would take a person and they would shish kebab them on the stick and then they would leave the body there in exposure. Darius, I think it's Darius one, his father was known at one time to, I think he impaled 3,000 men at one time. So there's a bunch of dead bodies on sticks. So again, if that sounds creepy to you, it's because it was. That was how they did their execution. So anyway, so they uh, took the guys, they stuck them on sticks. This was all recorded where? History, Chronicles books. Basically, they wrote it down. This made it the history books. It's a big deal. So they wrote it in the history books. All right. Now we come to chapter three, and we're gonna introduce to our nemesis in the story. Sometime later, the king, King Xerxes promoted Haman, son of Hamadatha, the Agite, over all the other nobles, making him the most powerful official in the empire. So a guy comes to power, kind of becomes the prime minister whose name is Haman. Now a little bit about his background here. There's some discussion about his ancestry. So it says he's an Agite. Can you think of any Agags in the Bible? Anybody? Yeah, what do you got? Faith. Yeah. Good call. Faith, remember. So back in the day, remember in our reference in our history, the first king of Israel was this guy Saul. And one of the first things God tells him to do is your job is to go smoke these guys, the Amalekites, who are the descendants of Esau and came against my people when they were coming out of Egypt. And so you need to go and wipe them out. And so Saul goes to war and mostly fulfills the commandment. But instead of wiping everything out, he's like, ah, there's some really nice sheep here. So they go ahead and kept the, the livestock and they brought back Agag alive. And God winds up um, judging Saul for failing to obey him. So some people, and I've heard lots of us have heard teachings, say that Haman is somehow a descendant of Agag. 
a guy who lived about 600 years before these events. The other theory is there was a province in um, Persia called Egeg. And so it may have been that his dad, Hamadatha, was from Egeg. Um, you can make up your mind whether, which of those you think is true, but anyway, that's the background on Haman. So he becomes the most powerful guy. And here's his big deal. He's super proud. If, you, if you're ever wondering, like, am I proud? You should just read through Haman's story, and if you hit any of those check marks, you got a problem. <laughs> guy is a, guy's a hot mess. Anyway, all the officials of the king, verse two, would bow before him with respect when he passed by, for so the king had commanded. So the king had been like, hey, like kind of remember how Joseph, when he becomes prime minister of Egypt, everybody respects him because he's the king's prime minister. It's just a way of showing respect. But Mordecai refused to bow down or show him any respect. Now, people have tried to moralize this and go, oh, well, this is because, you know, you should have no other gods before me. And so Mordecai is saying, I'm not gonna worship uh, Haman, and that's what it is. And there's no indication of that. It seems like it's just bowing in respect. It may actually have been that Mordecai was just a jerk about this. We don't know. It might have been. Some people speculate um, also that he knew his ancestry, and if, in fact, he was a descendant of Agag and was an Amalekite, and the Jews were supposed to have this attitude toward them that he was like, I'm never bowing down before an Amalekite. That's, that's a possibility too. We don't know for sure, but for whatever reason, Mordecai won't bow before him. And it just absolutely frustrates Haman. The palace officials at the king's gate asked Mordecai, why are you disobeying the king's command? They spoke to him day after day, but still he refused to comply with the order. So now Mordecai actually reveals something about his background, which, yeah. So they spoke to Haman about this to see if he would tolerate Mordecai's conduct since Mordecai had told them he was a Jew. When Haman saw that Mordecai would not bow down or show him respect, he was filled with rage. <sighs> Have you ever had somebody disrespect you? How does that feel? <laughs> Have you ever been filled with rage at the disrespect that someone showed you? you know, so we, should, we read Haman as a bad guy, but some of his problems are very much identifiable. So um, he learned of Mordecai's nationality. He decided it was not enough to lay hands on Mordecai alone. Instead, he looked for a way to destroy all the Jews through the entire empire of Xerxes. So he's like, I'm killing you and your whole family. That's Haman's plan. So I'm gonna really fast forward through this chapter because basically it's about his plot to do it, but I wanna read one verse in, chapter, in verse seven. So in the month of April, during the 12th year of King Xerxes' reign, if you're following our timeline, it's about nine years now since the beginning of our story in chapter one. Um, lots were cast in Haman's presence. The lots were called Purim, Purim, to determine the best day and month to take action. And the day selected was March 7th, nearly a year later. So uh, Persians were, uh, like I said, pagans and very superstitious. So he's trying to figure out what's the most, what's the right day before the gods to go about killing all these people. So they're casting lots for that. And they pick a day a year later. Just wanna, here's a quick reference for you to write in that I love. Proverbs chapter 16, verse 33. Proverbs 16, verse 33, and this is what it says. The lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. The lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. I love that. This is a, a claim in the scripture that God is sovereign over even details of life. Here's Haman, you know, no fear of God, quite the opposite. He wants to destroy God's people. And he's like, oh, I don't know. How about this and that? And you gotta think that... Uh, he thought that he picked this day, but I think the Lord had chosen this day. So anyway, then he goes to the king and he's basically like, there's some horrible people, they're called Jews, you should get rid of them, they don't follow any of your laws. Also, I'll give you, what was it, 750,000 pounds of silver if you do this. <laughs> King's like, sure, why not? Here's my ring, make it so. So he makes this whole decree, they send it out through all the land and people are freaked. If you get down to the end of chapter three, at the, verse 15, at the king's command, the decree went out by swift messengers, and it was proclaimed throughout the fortress of Susa. Then the king and Haman sat down to drink, following a pattern. But the city of Susa fell into confusion. Imagine people were scared. When a decree goes out that we're gonna commit genocide as a national policy, and your kingdom is made up of a lot of different groups, minority groups and nationalities, I'm sure there are other people going like, if it's the Jews now, what about us next? What's happening in our kingdom? And really, when you look at uh, just an aside about Xerxes, he really seems like kind of a feckless leader, just easily, easily swayed by whoever's around him. You know, he's like, what should I do about my wife? And the guys are like, get rid of her. And he's like, okay, cool. Guy comes in like, how about we kill all the Jews in your kingdom? Sure, let's do it as long as I get to have something to drink afterwards. So anyway, so this, this goes down. And that brings us into the chunk I actually want to focus on. So things to remember so far. Xerxes had a wife that he got rid of. He's lost a war. 
He picked up Esther through a really sketchy situation and she became his wife. A Jew is now in the palace as queen. Also, Mordecai is working as a palace official of some kind. He's working in the gate. But at this time, he's elevated this guy to be prime minister whose name is Haman, who's just a hot mess. And Haman wants to kill all the Jews. The king does not know that Esther is a Jew. Dun, dun, dun. Here we go. So when Mordecai learned about all that had been done, chapter four, he tore his clothes, put on burlap, which is a sign of mourning, and went out into the city. Esther hears about this and is like, oh man, what's going down with cousin Mordecai? So she sends to find out. She sends him some clothes. He won't change out of his clothes. Apparently, Esther does not know about the decree. You know, I guess this would have been, you know, you don't, they didn't trust women with information or something. So she doesn't know what's going down. So Mordecai tells her the whole thing and sends her a copy of the decree. And then he asks her um, in verse, where am I at? Verse eight. Mordecai gave Hathak, that's a guy who works for Esther, a copy of the decree issued in Susa that called for the death of all the Jews. And he asked Hathak to show it to Esther and explain the situation to her. And he also asked him to direct her to the king to beg for mercy and plead for her people. So Mordecai's like, please, would you go talk to the king about this? So he, the guy brings a message back. Esther tells him to go back to Mordecai and tell him this message. They didn't have text messaging, so things took longer. All the king's officials and even the people in the provinces know that anyone who appears before the king in his inner court without being invited is doomed to die unless the king holds out his golden scepter. You just didn't disturb the king whenever you wanted. It was a death penalty. And the king had not called for me for 30 days. She hadn't even seen her husband for 30 days. That could be good or bad, depending on your marriage. Maybe if your king was Xerxes, maybe you didn't want to see him. I don't know. Anyways, so Mordecai replied to Esther with these classic lines, don't think for a moment that because you're in the palace, you will escape when all the other Jews are killed. If you keep quiet at a time like this, deliverance and relief for the Jews will arise from some other place, but you and your relatives will die. Who knows if perhaps you were made queen for just such a time as this. He's like, Esther, this may be a huge part of your whole life story. Don't think you can just stay under the radar here. So then Esther sent this reply to Mordecai. I love this part, so good. Go and gather together all the Jews of Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, day or night. My maids and I will do the same. And then though it is against the law, I will go in to see the king and if I must die, I must die. Or if I perish, I perish. There's this resignation on her part, like if this is my duty, I'll do it even if it costs me my life. I love the, the courage of Esther in this deal. Real quick, I wanna look at verse 16. It says that they were going to do what for three days? Fast. What, what would you think would go along with fasting? Is it mentioned? It's not. Yeah, praying. We would think that it would go with praying, but it's not mentioned. I just draw that out to say again, we assume, you know, usually when you see this on the flannel graph, you're like, oh, they were such godly people. Well, they may have been praying, but it doesn't say that. And people did fast who weren't followers of God. If you read the story of Daniel, for example, you'll see Darius, when Daniel gets chucked in the lion's den, he fasts all that night for Daniel. We have no indication at that point that Darius was a follower of God. He seems to become one later after Daniel's delivered from the lion's den, but fasting was not just something that followers of God did. So I'm just drawing that out again to say the text does not make explicit that either Esther or Mordecai were really seeking God through this. They may have been, but it doesn't say that. We need to be careful with narrative text when we do that. So Esther makes his preparations. So now we get chapter five. On the third day of the feast, of the fast, I'm sorry, <laughs> big difference. <laughs> On the third day of the fast. I should keep those straight in my mind because they work a lot differently. On the third day of the fast, Esther put on her royal robes and entered the court of the palace just across from the king's hall. Just slow this down in your mind and think about what this is like. So she's, she sent this message to Mordecai. So she's got her crew together and they're fasting. I don't know, how do you guys feel when you fast? Does that help you feel more at peace? <laughs> and some people tell me that's how it goes for them. Fasting for me is always strict misery. And you're thinking about going before the most powerful man on the face of the earth who kills people by putting them on posts and who got rid of your predecessor because she made him angry. And now you're gonna walk in there. I just think getting ready, what would that have felt like? Like, am I walking to my death? Am I about to be given the order to be killed by my husband? Like, just put yourself in Esther's sandals as she walks in there. So she goes into the king's hall. The king was sitting on his royal throne facing the entrance. And when he saw Queen Esther standing there in the inner court, he welcomed her and held out the golden scepter. Whew. So Esther approached and touched the end of the scepter. 
And the king asked her, what do you want, Queen Esther? What is your request? I will give it to you even if it's half the kingdom. That's kind of a hyperbole. He wasn't literally offering her half of that real estate I showed you. It was just a way to say, I really, what can I do for you? So Esther replied, now I wonder about this. Now, if you've been fasting for three days, have you ever had something you probably fast and pray, right? Where you've been really seeking the Lord about something, it's burden to, have you done this? Anybody? Nobody? Oh, okay. Even if you haven't fasted, have you prayed on something for multiple days? And it's right at the front of your mind, like if somebody asks you what's going on, what's the first thing you talk about? That thing, like it's on your mind, you're ready to go. If the person who can answer your request asks you, what do you want me to do for you? What's your instinct? This is what's been on my mind for like five days. Can you help me? So Esther's response is completely unexpected. Come today to a banquet I've prepared for the king. Now notice prepared today, she had a plan. This was part of Esther's plan. This wasn't like off the cuff, like she freaked out and like, banquet. It was prepared. So, so she, and why she invites Haman's also super weird to me. So she invites him. Maybe she knows something about her husband that a guy likes to party. <laughs> so she's like, before I ask my husband, I'm going to make sure he's had food and drink. Maybe it's dreaded. We don't know. But anyway, she invites these guys to a banquet. I just respect her restraint. I couldn't have held back. I've been like, me and my family about to be killed by this jerk you appointed as prime minister. Can you handle this for me? And she's like, hey, can, uh, can you come to a banquet? So anyway, off to the banquet they go. The king turned to his attendants and said, tell Haman to come quickly. King, again, motivated by food. He's not gonna waste any time. To a banquet as Esther requested. So the king and Haman went to Esther's banquet. While they were drinking wine, the king said to Esther, now tell me what you really want. And I'm like, this is it. Here's the moment. Esther, you've waited for this. You've fasted. Now tell him, right? Seven, Esther replied, this is my request and deepest wish. Okay, what is it? If I found favor with the king, yeah. And if it pleases the king to grant my request, yeah. And do what I ask, yeah. Please come with Haman tomorrow to the banquet that I will prepare for you. Then I will explain what all this is about. Now, if I'm the king, I'm like, just tell me, what do you want? This is every man's thing. Woman, just tell me what you want. Anyways, so... uh, so she says at banquet, so off they go. Now, this is so interesting that she just waits. Uh, there's a verse you might write in here, Ecclesiastes chapter three, verse seven. Ecclesiastes chapter three, verse seven, which says there's a time to speak and there's a time to be quiet. I haven't learned the second part of that verse yet, but I want to. Esther seems to have either she's, you know, we don't know why, but um, it's very, very strategic. Not maybe from her perspective that she doesn't speak just then because watch what happens next. This is so cool. I really think this would make a great movie if they didn't try to make it all pretty. Just like tell the whole story. So dramatic. Haman was happy as he left the banquet. But when he saw Mordecai (laughs) sitting at the palace gate, not standing up or trembling nervously before him, Haman became furious. Have you ever had this happen? Things are going, you know, (laughs) everything's going my way and you see that person, and it's just like all of that joy just sucked out of your body by that person. Oh, it's a problem. That's a problem in our flesh, man. It's not supposed to be that way. Anyways, so Hamas, he's just got, he's wrecked by this guy. So now this is just classic. (laughs) However, he restrained himself and went home. (sighs) Haman gathered together. How would you like to be this guy's friend? Watch this. Haman gathered together his friends, and Zeresh, his wife, whose name sounds like a superhero to me, but anyways, and boasted to them about his great wealth and his many children. <laughs> hey guys, I want you to come over to the house. What are we gonna do? I gotta tell you how great I am. Gather around, everyone. Here's how much money is in my bank account right here. This is cool. Also, I have all of these children. Have I showed you all these pictures of my children that I made? Zeresh is probably like, oh my gosh, this guy. So he brags about them and he bragged about the honors the king had given him and how he'd been promoted over all the other nobles and officials. And him added, and that's not all. Queen Esther invited only me and the king himself to the banquet that she prepared for us. And she's invited me to dine with her and the king again tomorrow. So he goes through it. This guy is just a piece of work. But this is all worth nothing as long as I see Mordecai the Jew just sitting there at the palace gate. Everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. That's what Jesus says in Luke chapter 14. Everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. Proverbs 16, 18, pride comes before destruction and a haughty spirit before stumbling. Proverbs 27, verse two, let another praise you and not your own lips. Not a good setup for our boy, Haman. 
So Haman's wife, Zeresh, oh, she's actually not really a good advisor either, but here we go. And all his friends suggested, here's their plan. Uh, set up a sharpened pole that stands 75 feet tall. In the morning, ask the king to impale Mordecai on it. When this is done, you can go on your merry way to the banquet with the king. This pleased Haman, and he ordered the pole set up. It's like, ah, uh, you should have that guy killed. And why would, why would they put guys on a stick? What's the, what's the, yeah, because you want to make a point. No, I'm actually, it's true. It's a good pun, but it's actually true. You'd put them on a pole on the point because you want to make the point to everyone watching, like this is what you do when you come against me or you disrespect me. This is the deal. So he sets up his, his pole for, for Mordecai. Uh, that night, this is my, I called this sermon that night. I just wanted you to know that. That night, the king had trouble sleeping. Now, what had he been doing that day? Partying, yeah. Has anybody ever had trouble sleep, sleeping after you ate the wrong thing? Like he had some bad seafood, you know, maybe Esther didn't have this, the sushi quite squared away. He's like, oh man, he can't sleep. He has trouble sleeping. So <laughs> what does he do? He orders the attendant to bring the book of the history of his reign. Like, I know what will put me to sleep. Please read me some boring history, some government books. What have you got? Federal register, please. Let's go. So there they go and they're reading it to him. So they could read it to him. And in these records, he discovered an account. What was written in there before? Do you remember what was recorded in there? Think about Mordecai, right? Finding out about that whole assassination plot. So that's the part that comes up. Of all the things, is, you know, we know that he's been king now for more than 10 years. There's a lot of stuff. Little things like I went and fought Greece a couple times, you know. And the, so he discovered an account of how Mordecai had exposed the plot of Bigtha and Teresh, two of the eunuchs who guarded the door, and they plotted to assassinate the king. Verse three, all of a sudden, they, you know, so they're reading through and they're like, maybe the king's like, he's trying hard to fall asleep. And they're like, big deal, I could have died, jeesh. Okay, and the next thing is about some camels. Hold on, what do we do for Mordecai? So they asked him, was there any reward for this guy? And they're like, nothing was done for him. And he's like, guy saved my life. We didn't do anything for him. So he says, who is in the outer court? as it happened. You might underline that as well. Some fun phrases to go through here. That night, as it happened, Haman had just arrived in the outer court of the palace to ask the king to impale Mordecai, the guy that the king had just heard about who saved his life. So the attendants replied to the king, Haman's out in the court. Bring him in, the king ordered. So Haman came in and the king said, what should I do to honor a man who truly pleases me? Haman thought to himself, whom would the king wish to honor more than me? <laughs> oh, dude, <this> guy. <laughs> Don't you wish you could just see it like in cartoon, there's like a thought bubble, like who would the king wish to honor more than me? Well, so, so he replied, if the king wishes to honor someone, and the way I see this in my mind, it's, I know this is not true, is that the king's like looking for ideas. So as Haman starts to wax into this idea of, because he's got to come up with this off the cuff, you know? The king's like, yeah, yeah? So here's how I read it. So, so he replied, if the king wishes to honor someone, yeah, he should bring one of the king's royal robes, yeah, as well as a horse the king himself has ridden, yeah? Keep going, with a royal emblem on its head. Let the robes and the horse be handed over to one of the king's most noble officials and let him see the man whom the king wishes to honor as dressed in the king's robe and led through the city square on the king's horse. Have the officials shout as they go, this is what the king does for someone he wishes to honor. Excellent, the king said to Haman. Quick, take the robes. And I'm just watching, you know, Haman's like, here it comes, man. This is it, man. <laughs> Quick, take the robes of my horse and do just as you have said for Mordecai the Jew. And just like, oh, mic drop, you know, in his face, like, oh, collar, like, oh, plot twist who sits at the gate of the palace, leaving out nothing you've suggested. So, so Haman goes, and he's got to do this. He's going, this is the guy. <laughs> I was planning to kill you, but instead, how about this? He doesn't say that to Mordecai, obviously, but he's got to like robe him up and like, then he's leading him. This is what the king does for the man he delights to honor. Hey, what about that pole at your house? Shh, don't talk about the pole. So now he's just in a bad way. So um, he heads home to uh, verse 13. Haman told his wife Zeresh and all his friends what had happened his wise advisors and his wife, again, not helpful. Oh, since Mordecai the Jew who's humiliated you, I wonder if they enjoyed saying that. <laughs> He's humiliated you. 
uh, is of Jewish birth, you will never succeed in your plans against him. It will be fatal to continue opposing him. I wish you told me that yesterday when you said I should put the guy on a pole. I didn't know about this whole Jew thing that was such a big deal, apparently. Man, Genesis 12.3, Genesis 12.3, part of God's promise to Abraham where he says, those who bless you, I will bless, and those who curse you, I will curse. A unconditional promise that God made to Abraham and to his descendants. The Lord is still looking out for his people. Whether they're following him, whether they're keeping the dietary laws or not, I'm just thinking of that example from our text, he is looking out for his people. And it seems like they had some awareness of that, that there was something special about God's chosen people. At least it seems that way. So verse 14, while they were still talking, the king's eunuchs arrived and quickly took Haman to the banquet Esther had prepared. So the king and Haman, verse, chapter seven, verse one, went to Queen Esther's banquet. On the second occasion, while they were drinking wine, the king said to Esther, and things are gonna go really fast and really bad for our guy, Haman. Queen Esther replied, if I found favor with the king, verse three, and if it pleases the king to grant my request, I ask that my life and the lives of my people be spared. And I just think of the king like he's enjoying himself. He's got a beautiful wife. He's with his friend Haman. He's got food and the whole thing. And he's like, honey, tell me, what do you want? She's like, I just want to live. And I just spit take, like, what are you even talking about? I just want to live. And she says, uh, verse four, for my people and I have been set, for that would be too trivial a matter to warrant disturbing the king. Who would do such a thing Xerxes demanded, who would be so presumptuous as to touch you? Esther replied, this wicked Haman is our adversary and our enemy. Haman grew pale with fright before the king and the queen. And the king jumped to his feet in rage and ran out into the palace garden. You can just see the, the color drain out of Haman's face. And he knows the king has a rage issue. We've seen it before. Jumps up. He's already been drinking, heads out. We don't know why he runs out. Is he just so mad he can't contain himself? Is he trying to figure out what to do with Haman? It doesn't say, but he, he heads out and Haman knows he's in trouble, right? Trained out of his face. So he just kind of freaks out. Um, Haman, however, stayed behind to plead for his life with Queen Esther for he knew that the king intended to kill him. In despair, he fell on the couch where Queen Esther was reclining just as the king was returning from the palace. So they ate lying down as a lot of those uh, Middle Eastern cultures, some still do. If you wanna have fun, go to Marrakesh in Portland sometime and, and have that situation. But anyways, so Esther's like reclining on this couch and he's like, if you think of a guy begging for his life, like, please, please save me. So he's like falling on the couch and kind of looks like he's attacking her. And I'm sure she hates Haman, right? She's probably recoiling from him. So the king walks in while this dude is falling on his wife, clawing at her. This is how I say it in my brain anyway. And that's why the king reacts the way he does. The king explained, exclaimed, will he even assault the queen right here in the palace before my very eyes? And as soon as the king spoke, his attendants covered Haman's face, signaling his doom. It's what they would do apparently to someone who'd been sentenced to death. They'd cover their face with a veil. Then Harbona, one of the king's eunuchs said, uh, hey, uh, Haman set up a sharpened pole that stands 75 feet tall in his own courtyard. He intended to use it to impale Mordecai, the man who saved the king from assassination, then impale Haman on it the king ordered. So they impaled Haman on the pole he had set up for Mordecai and the king's anger subsided. There's a great verse in, in Proverbs 26, 27 that says, if you try to roll a boulder, it'll fall back on you. It's not a karma verse. It's just saying like this kind of a good example of that situation. Haman planned for Mordecai's demise and it actually ends up being his demise. Now I'm gonna move really fast just to summarize the rest of the book for you and then I'm gonna make our points. Here's the deal. After this, they have to figure out what to do. So they come up with a counter, the, the laws of the, the Medes and Persians were unique. It was kind of, a, as you see, the principle of lex rex starting to merge in the principle that law is a king rather than a king. A king could not change one of his own laws under the Medes and Persians. And so um, they can make a counter law, but they can't, make, they can't undo the law. So anyways, they make a different law that says that the Jews could defend themselves, and they do, and they wind up defeating a bunch of these enemies who would have wanted to hurt them. Mordecai becomes the new prime minister uh, Haman is killed. His family is wiped out in that, uh, in that conflict that took place about a year later. And things go really well for Xerxes as, with Mordecai as his, uh, his prime minister and Esther as his queen. And out of this comes the feast of Purim. So if you talk to any Jewish friends and they have this, this special feast, Purim comes from these events. It's a celebration. Purim is the plural, the, it, it's about those lots, right? And that those lots were cast for their doom. Actually, God turned it around. That's what we would say, right? 
and worked it out for good. And so uh, chapter nine, uh, verse 22, uh, Mordecai prescribes his feast. He says, he told them to celebrate these days with feasting and gladness and by giving gifts of food to each other and presents to the poor. This would commemorate a time when the Jews gained relief from their enemies, when their sorrow was turned into gladness and their mourning to joy. Let me read that last part again. It would commemorate a time when they gained relief from their enemies, when their sorrow was turned to gladness and their mourning was turned into joy. How did that come about? Man, go back to chapter six, verse one, that night. I love this. This is what I felt like, I was studying at Peter Pan and earlier this week, I felt like this was the word of the Lord for me that night. I want you to really quickly, can you think of, let me start by saying this. To me, the book of Esther is a book that shows us the sovereign care of God for his people. Now, Esther is a unique book in that the name of God is not mentioned anywhere. I think Song of Solomon is the other one. There's two books. Isn't that weird? A book in the Bible that doesn't talk about God? A book in the Bible that doesn't talk about prayer? That doesn't mention one person seeking God at any point? And it made the 66 books that God preserved for us here. Why? Boy, I think it's so clear that the hand of God is watching over his people in this story. Just stop for a minute and think about the number of things that happened in order to go from this guy getting exalted to become a powerful political leader. He's rich, he's got the king's ear, and he's plotting the destruction of God's people to that guy's dead and actually his stuff is yours and you're in this way better position than when you started. How many of the things happened in there that they, that they could, the people in the story couldn't control? Mordecai and Esther. What are some things that were key to the, that turn of events? Yeah, they couldn't control that, that whole situation, Esther becoming queen, not under your control. What else? The king not sleeping. Yeah, they couldn't control that. There was no like, we don't, Esther didn't like slip him something, you know, at the banquet that we know. What else? What was read to him? I think that's so fascinating. Like of all the things you could read out of these massive tome, you found that spot to read to the king? There's three, what else? Haman coming in the night, yeah. Haman's like, I know what time I should walk right in, right after the king's read from that section of the book. Yeah, what else? Esther becoming queen, absolutely, yep. What else? What, what, did, uh, what does Haman wind up dying on? What, yeah, right? right? That, they couldn't control the fact that he went home and made this whole thing to kill Mordecai that wind up being his own doom. There's probably more, but I just want you to note these things. Like there's no way if they had tried with all of their might, seeing this horrible plot come down in chapter four to orchestrate God turning these things around, they, they couldn't have done it. It was beyond, listen, it was beyond their control. Is beyond their control. How much time do you and I spend worrying about things, outcomes that we, that we wanna see be different? Maybe we're even right about those outcomes and we are stressing about the details and how we're gonna make that happen. It's beyond your control. We serve a God who says that he is sovereign. I'll just give you a few uh, references over that. One of my favorites, Job chapter 42, verse two. Job 42, two. When I pray quite often, he says, Job says to the Lord, I know that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. That when God decides that he's gonna go in a direction and do a thing, when he decrees it, it's gonna happen. Nobody can stop him. And he loves me and he loves you and he's good. Isaiah 37, 26. Isaiah 37, 26 says, long ago I planned it and now I'm making it happen or bringing it to pass. Psalm 115, verse three. Psalm 115, verse three says, God is in his heaven and he does whatever he pleases. Two that I dearly love from Daniel. Daniel chapter two, verse 20 says, he sets up kings and he puts down kings. Boy, next time you're thinking about politics, sets up kings and he puts down kings. For, so I, I think I can say this. I think Donald Trump and Joe Biden are both presidents or have been presidents because God allowed that. Did you know sometimes God gives leaders and kings as a judgment to his people too, or to a nation? So we always think, well, well, how could he pick somebody like Hitler or something? Well, maybe there was a purpose that God had in judging, you know, people are going in a certain direction. Like, okay, that's the kind of leader I'm gonna give you if that's, if that's where you're heading. That's the claim of the Bible. I wouldn't make that claim except he says it's so. Daniel chapter four, verse 17, Daniel four seventeen. Nebuchadnezzar himself, and what I think is probably sort of a conversion story says, I now know that God is sovereign and he sets over the kingdoms, the lowliest of men. He sets over the lowliest of men. 
God, I feel like God's fingerprints are so in the story of Esther. How could such a thing be? How could all of those events come out in just that way so that they go from a death sentence to victory and exaltation, except by the hand of God, things that they could not control? That night. Yeah. Yeah, Peter brings up when they entered this counter, this the counter mandate that came out, a bunch of people were like scared of the Jews and so some of them started converting. <laughs> so yeah, there's some question as to whether that was like a actual conversion or was that just like, oh, I don't wanna die, so how about I become a Jew? Absolutely, no, I'm not discounting your point. I just wanna be careful with it. Yeah, I wanna calibrate it. So yes, I totally think that's a good point that there was some things that, that seemed to spread from that that were very, very good and it was good for the kingdom. There's so many things that happen that night in the Bible. So many things. I just have a few examples I'm gonna run through that I really like. In 2 Kings chapter six, 2 Kings chapter six, Elisha has been this thorn in the side of this enemy army. And so the king sends a whole army to surround the city where Elisha is that night. And they wake up in the morning, they come out and they're all surrounded by these, this horrible army. And the uh, servant comes out and is like, ah, we're done. And Elisha's like, would you open his eyes so that he can see? And the Lord opens his eyes and he realizes there's a whole spiritual force that's around Elisha protecting him. Things were so different from the way they looked happened that night. When does Joseph, who's gonna divorce Mary over her pregnancy, and that night he has a dream from the Lord and he says, no, don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife, Matthew chapter one. Daniel chapter two, again, a death sentence for exiles. The king's like, we're getting rid of everybody who's my advisors. And he and his friends pray, and that night, God gives Daniel the interpretation of that dream. God prophesied Babylon's fall, that it would be in one night. Daniel comes in, says to um, the king at that time, hey, this is what's gonna happen, handwriting on the wall, and that night, Babylon falls. The great city of Babylon that some people thought could never be defeated falls in one night. Jesus' disciples out on the sea, scared to death in the middle of a storm, and Jesus comes walking to them in the middle of the night. It says, peace be still to the waves. Surrounded by the king of Assyria and his army, Hezekiah and Isaiah pray, and it says in one night, the Lord sends out an angel who kills 185,000 soldiers in one night. Peter, about to be executed, church is praying, and that night, the Lord sends an angel and rescues him out of prison. Paul is on a missionary journey, thwarted in these different directions he's trying to go. And that night, the Lord sends a, has a, this vision of a Macedonian man saying, come over and help us. Paul and Silas in the middle of the night are singing and praising God and there's an earthquake and they go from prisoners in the lowest dungeon to free evangelizing um, the, the jailer. Why do I tell you all the stories? Well, because they remind me that God is sovereign and that he often works. It's almost like he has a flair for the dramatic. Now, I'm not saying that's his deal. I don't know. You know, he hasn't said that verse in the Bible, like, I like drama, so I'm gonna write the story this way. But when you read it, you're like, wow, Lord, you really like to step in at the last minute. You really like to step in in the nighttime when things are like, boy, tomorrow it's going down. Haman's gonna stick Mordecai on a pole. Nope. Yeah, not. Often, yeah, right before the dawn, they say, you know, it's the darkest, it's before the dawn. That's what they say. I don't know if that's true. So here's the thing, guys, what are you worried about and freaked out about? You know, sometimes it can be politics. You're like, oh, the rise of Haman in our country, the way things are going in America right now, boy, it's pretty bad. And, and you wouldn't be wrong. If you were a Jew watching Haman rise to power, you'd have been correct in your assessment. But if that was robbing you of your confidence in the power and goodness of God to accomplish his purposes, if that's stealing joy from you, I think we have a wrong perspective because in a night, God can change the direction of anything, right? What does he say? You know, to look all the way to the end, he says, the day of the Lord will come, how? Like a thief in the night. Man, when you read Zechariah about his coming, it's like things get really bad. Jerusalem, it says, will be surrounded, pillaging, raping, all this horrible stuff. And then Jesus lands on the Mount of Olives and splits that sucker in two and goes in and handles business. That's an interventionist God. I love that about him. Why are we so afraid of these things? And I'll tell you where I feel like this ends for me. I'm gonna read one last. Um, well, let me, let, me, let me say this. Here, here's what I'm gonna say. God is often working. When you put all these things together, I say it happened in one night. But if you put all of the details together, there's a kind of a complex series of events that have to happen to bring about this outcome, right? 
It's like he's working behind the scenes. Always. He's always working. So, there's a story that I read a, a while back about this uh, battle during World War II. And uh, it didn't actually end up, the whole battle didn't end up really, I think it's called the Battle of Rezev. And the Russians were fighting the Germans, and it's wintertime. And there's this river, and they're on both sides of the river, and they're kind of stuck there. And the Russians are trying to launch this offensive. And they have to get across the river. And so the orders come, here's what you need to do. You've got to get across the river, and we've got to get tanks across the river. So you've got to build a bridge. But of course, the Germans will be able to see you, and they'll blow up the bridge. So you've got to build the bridge without the Germans knowing. So here's what they do. The, the, the landscape was something like this. The Germans are on this side on like a high, I don't know if it's a cliff, but it's like a sheer wall, right? So they're up here. And then the Russian side kind of comes down like this to the river. So the engineer in charge of this comes up with this scheme where they would go at night when the cloud cover was good and the moon was down into this river. It's frozen, like ice flows and all that. And they'd wade into the river at night, real quiet, carrying these rocks and stuff on stretchers through the ice and snow. And they'd go under the the lee of this bank so the Germans couldn't see him. And they built this whole bridge structure about 18 inches under the surface of the water. And they built it all the way back over time. And the whole thing, the river would freeze and be covered with snow. You wouldn't know that there was a bridge there. And then on the day of the invasion, the guy went out and just marked kind of the, the pathway. And then the tanks busted off the side of this bank and hit the river. And I'm sure the Germans were like, whoa, what are these guys doing? And instead of sinking into the river, they're cruising right across the top of the river. And then that's how they, they launched their offensive against these guys. I like that story because there's a lot of work that went on that you couldn't see that made that breakthrough possible. And what I wanna say is that's how, I think that's how our God is. So when you're in the middle of whatever you're facing or looking at, and it could be national, it could be spiritual, it could be your own life, you know, tax season's coming up, I don't know what you, got, what you owe. Why do we get so concerned when we have a good God who's wise and loves us and is always working behind the scenes? Again, in this case, possibly for two people who maybe weren't even faithful Jews, right? It doesn't say, I'm gonna do this for you because you've been so faithful to me. That's not in the text. He's working for his people, his covenant people. Are you part of that new covenant today? Have you accepted the work of Jesus Christ on the cross for you, that he died for you because he loves you? Have you said, Lord, I yield to you, I give you my life, I can't save myself? If you have, you've been born again, God's spirit is in you, and the promise of resurrection life is coming. That's, that's where you stand, and you stand there because of the work of Jesus, not because of your goodness, not because you've read your Bible enough or prayed enough or come to church enough times or any of those things. You stand in that place. He's watching out for you. Now, I am not saying that there are no consequences to the choices that we make, of course, in some ways, you might look at the story and think, man, if Mordecai and Esther had just gone to the promised land with everybody else, they wouldn't even have had to be there. And that's, that's true. But there they were, and God took care of them anyway. He wants to take care of you. Trust him. Trust him that he can work in the night for you. And that one day, <laughs> Jesus is gonna come back and set all things right. And it'll be, the Bible says, the former things won't even be remembered or come to mind all the sorrow, sighing and pain will be gone in the night, just like that. Here's the thing, 2 Kings chapter 6, verse 33. <sighs> There's a story. The king is surrounded. He's not a good king. And he's been fasting. There's no food in the city. Two women show up and are like, hey, we've got this problem, judge for us. I said, uh, we could eat my, her kid tonight and then mine today or something like that. And they're like, now we ate one of the kids and the other lady's hidden, it's not fair. And the king's like, what is happening in my kingdom? And he tears his robes. And he sends for Elisha to kill him. And this is what he says. All this misery is from the Lord. Why should I wait for the Lord any longer? Have you ever felt that way? You've been waiting, enduring, you're going through it. All this misery is, now, now you're giving God the credit for it, is from the Lord, why should I wait anymore? And you're gonna do something drastic. And what he did not know was that that very night, some lepers go out from the city at twilight. They're like, man, we might as well give ourselves up to the enemy. We're gonna die anyway. God had cleared out the enemy. They were gone and all their food was just sitting there. And these lepers go and they start eating and they're like, we better take this back to the city or we're gonna be in real trouble. And they do and there's like a food riot Anyways, God had provided, they were, he was on the verge of breakthrough. 
And he's like, I can't wait anymore. I just feel like that's me sometimes. And I don't know, and I think he's set up, the gallows are set up, everything's in place, Lord, it's going so badly, where are you? And that night, he's ready to do his thing. Can we just trust him? That's basically it. What have you got? What are you worried about? Can you just turn it over to him and trust that he's working behind the scenes? Let's stand and pray and we'll be done. I'll know where, shoot. Oh, Stephen, did you have a song? I'm so sorry, are you ready to close this thing out? Worship team can come up, there we go. Lord, uh, dude, I totally blew the time on that, my fault. Jesus, I uh, pray um, for your editing. It was that we covered a whole book today. And uh, the main point of this is that I wanna land on is that you are good and sovereign. And I'm so grateful. Your sovereignty is probably the most comforting thing that I I have in my life um, other than your expressed love for me. Like knowing that you're a good God and that that goodness is directed towards me and towards accomplishing your purposes in the world, that you're actually the main character of the story, that it isn't me. I want you to be glorified. I want people in the world to get to see your greatness. And I realize that sometimes you're taking me through these things too because you wanna show that to others. And I'm so sorry for how many times I've been like, this misery is from you. Why should I wait for you anymore? And I'm looking to other things to satisfy me or to solve my problems instead of waiting on you. Jesus, I wanna leave room for you to work in the night. I think my friends do too, especially when you hear these things. But I know that their circumstances and the things that they worry about are probably legitimately heavy. I, could, I can't know that, but you do. And I ask today that you would encourage them. I pray that you would speak to their heart about your sovereignty and ask them again to trust you and that you give them the grace to do it. And they'd be able to take their cares and cast them on you because you care for them. And then Lord, whether it's in this life or at the end, however it works, may it be that the circumstances that we go through turn out for your glory, that they really display the power and goodness of God, the wisdom to weave together circumstances like a pole and sleeplessness and what we read to bring about your uh, display of your faithfulness. And ask this in Jesus' name, amen.